As we come now to hear from God's word, I'll ask that you turn with me to the book of Mark in chapter 8, the gospel of Mark chapter 8. And before we read, would you pray with me? Our Lord, you remind us that Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We know that now that as we come to your word, we're about to hear from you. Help us to be humbled by this, to trust that you will provide. Holy Spirit, would you open our minds and hearts to really see and believe because these things are really true. Father, guide us, we pray, and in the name of Jesus, we trust and pray. Amen. I'll read now from Mark chapter 8. I want to read the first 21 verses. This is Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and had nothing to eat, he, that's Jesus, called his disciples to him and and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples asked him, "How how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now... They'd forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, don't you see? Having ears, don't you hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This is God's word. Now, If you've been with us over the past several weeks and months, you know that we're reading through the book of Mark, and in reading this, you may have experienced just a little bit of deja vu. 
haven't we seen this story before? I recognize this feeding of all these people with loaves and fish. And the reason why you feel that is because something very similar happened just a few weeks ago as we looked at it in chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000 men. This is a different story that happens just two chapters later. And there are indeed incredible amount of similarities here. There's a huge group of hungry people. It says in both accounts that Jesus had compassion on on them. In both accounts, there's a miraculous multiplying of bread and fish. In both accounts, the disciples are the ones that actually feed the people. In both accounts, they eat until they're satisfied and there's baskets full left over. And in both accounts, at the end, Jesus and his disciples get in a boat and leave. The similarities between these two lead some to say that there's an error here that Mark was somehow mistaken, that perhaps there was a copyist error in translating the Bible, that this was actually one account that happened and it was translated or recorded twice. That's what some would say. But as we read, we shouldn't miss the differences here. In this account, the people are with him three days, and the earlier account, they're with him one. Here it says specifically there were 4,000 people, and the other, there's 5,000 men. In this account, the description of the fish even is different. It's a small fish, like an anchovy or maybe a sardine, different type of fish than in the previous account. And in this account, the geographic region is different. Add to that the very ending that we read in verses 19 and 20, that Jesus mentions both accounts separately. He says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, he says in 19, and then in 20, and the seven for the 4,000. So Jesus is describing now two separate incidents. So we know that we can trust the reliability of the scriptures, that these really were two separate occasions. And the reason why Jesus would do pretty much the exact same miracle is very similar to the reason why a theater company would perform the exact same show over a weekend or over several weeks. The reason they perform the same show is because the audience is different. It's not the show that's different, but there are new people sitting in the seats, and for them, this is their first time seeing it. So in the 5,000 men and with the 4,000 people this time, there were a different group of people with the exact same need that they would just need to be fed. Now, this might explain why Jesus did the same, virtually the same miracle on two different occasions, but it does not explain a question that we might have, which is, why did Mark record both of these virtually identical incidents? Because even though the audience that Jesus was with at the time was different, the audience who's reading Mark, I'm the same reader reading in chapter 6 and the same reader reading in chapter 8. And I feel like I've read this before when I come across this. So we have to ask this question, and it's a good one to ask whenever we read the scripture, which is, why did Mark or why did the Holy Spirit record this here? Is he just repeating himself? The answer to that is, No, why did Mark record this here? I think the answer is tied up in the fact of what happens after this account when they begin talking about the bread with the Pharisees and the disciples. So we should look there. 
we see in chapter, or verse 11, the Pharisees now come. This is on the tail end of the incident with the multiplying the loaves and the fishes. And the Pharisees come up and begin asking Jesus for a sign, the scripture says. Now, we know that the Bible is not opposed to the idea of signs. God often gives signs. One of the most famous ones happens at Christmas time. You probably remember with the shepherds, the angel comes and, and they say, uh, this will be a sign unto you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. They're specifically given a sign. And in John chapter 2, John describes that the first miracle or the first sign, John says, was Jesus turning the water into wine, and he says, and there were many other signs like this. So he describes all of the miracles that Jesus has done really as signs. So the Bible's not opposed to having signs, and the Bible is not opposed to folks asking for signs. We see later in Mark's gospel, even in chapter 13, verse 4. The disciples are talking with Jesus. I'll back up to three. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the signs that all of these things are about to be accomplished? Now we'll get to explore what that actually is in future weeks because that's later in chapter 13. But at least taps into the idea that it's okay for them to ask for a sign because Jesus then gives them the signs. He starts telling them about this, and later, in verse 28 of that chapter, he gives this example. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, then you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you will know that he is near at the very gates. Here's the idea that he's giving us. He says, you know how fig trees work? When they get kind of bendy and they start to produce leaves, that means summer's close by. You farmers are probably far more familiar with this than I am. You know sort of the signs of things. When buds are happening, this means this is about to happen. That's really what a sign is. It's an indicator, a neon flashing sign that points us in a particular direction. And as Jesus has been giving signs, miracles, over the course of Mark's gospel, he's really flashing this neon sign that says, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, I am the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Don't miss that. So then, if the Bible and Jesus is not opposed to signs generally, and it's not opposed to asking for signs, then why does he take issue with the Pharisees here? Because Jesus' response to this is interesting in verse 12. My Bible says, and he sighed deeply in his spirit. It's an interesting way to say that. We could also translate that, and he moaned. If you have kids... You know what this experience is like. <sighs> this is not one of those sitcom moans where you go, ah, you know? They're kind of smiling on the side. Jesus is upset here. He's exasperated at them for asking. Why? Why is Jesus upset? 
We know then that the issue is not that they asked for signs. The issue is why they asked for signs. It's their motive in asking Jesus for a sign. In verse 11 it says they began to argue with him and that they were seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. The Pharisees had seen plenty of signs all the way back to chapter 3. We know that they had marked Jesus as a, a troubled child, if we can say it that way. If you're a teacher, if you've ever worked with kids or a bunch of kids at one time, you know there's maybe one or two, maybe the whole group that you think might cause you some difficulty. And so what do you do with that child? You kind of keep one eye on everything that's going on and one eye on that kid. And that was the experience of the Pharisees. They knew that Jesus, at least for them, was going to cause them a lot of trouble. So they were very closely following what he was doing. So they saw and heard everything that he had said and done. They saw the healings. They saw when he took away the woman's bleeding disease. They would have known when he raised the girl from the dead. So they were aware of all these signs. Why then are they now asking for a sign? And the answer to that is because they're trying to challenge him. Basically, they're saying with this, Jesus, prove yourself. But they're not actually looking for him to actually prove himself. Because the issue for them had already been decided in their own minds already. They already did not believe. Now, unbelief, we need to talk about this briefly for a moment. Unbelief is different than doubt. It's different than questioning. It's different than being curious. It's different than a lack of even of understanding. To be unbelieving is to purposefully set yourself in opposition to a thing. This might sound similar to not knowing what's going on, but we can see the difference when Jesus is first born in the situations with Mary and with Zachariah. So both of them are visited by angels. You remember during Christmas time, we often talk about these things. Mary's told that she'll have a child, and Zachariah likewise is told that he'll have a child, John the Baptist. And both of them ask virtually the same question, single word, how? Mary says, I'm a virgin. Zachariah says, I'm too old. How is this going to happen? So on the face, that question sounds the same, but the response, Mary is praised for her response, and Zechariah is criticized. Why? Because what's underneath the motive of both of those questions is very different. Mary is asking to seek information. It's an information-seeking question. Just realistically, how is this going to happen? Zechariah is doing something different. It's not seeking information. This is a challenging question. How's that going to happen? You can hear it almost in the tone of voice. We can't hear the tone of voice as we read the scripture, but we can deduce what it is based on their attitude. So Mary approaches with belief, and Zachariah approaches with unbelief. You can even see it in a person's posture that belief, even when it doesn't know or understand, leans forward with open hands. How? 
Unbelief leans backward with crossed arms. How? Do you hear the difference then? So here with the Pharisees, Jesus then is coming right up against their unbelief. And this is sin, very serious sin. Unbelief, if unchecked, will lead us to death. In Matthew's account of this exact same situation in in chapter 16, Jesus calls the Pharisees there an evil and adulterous generation. Evil, okay, it makes sense, but the word adulterous gets at me because he's comparing belief, uh, belief or unbelief with adultery. Those sound like very different things to me. Adultery, boy, that's a really serious one. Cheat on your wife, boy, that's really serious, and it is. But he's comparing adultery with unbelief, which we don't take maybe as seriously. But the roots of these are the same, that adultery, really like all sin, is an exchange. I exchange my wife for my mistress. And unbelief does the exact same thing. It's not just skepticism. It's an exchange, exchanging belief in Jesus for actually belief in something else. It's unbelief in Jesus, but belief in something different, usually belief in the self. To not trust in Jesus is actually to trust in something else more. So if a person says, or even if we ourselves say to ourselves, if they say, I don't believe, a good response to that is, what are you believing instead? Jesus would caution us here then that belief in Jesus is really vital to us. So unbelief in Jesus puts us really in extreme danger. We can see then that's why he responds to his disciples in a follow-up to this discussion with the Pharisees. In verse 15, here's his words. He cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware! Basically, you could translate those, Look! See! Pay attention. He's really calling us to look at something here. And then he compares the Pharisees and Herod to leaven, which is an interesting word for us. A modern word for that is yeast. And there was a common phrase, I guess, um, because Paul mentions it in Galatians and again in, in 1 Corinthians 5, this phrase, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Or, you could say it, a little yeast gets in all the bread. So from that, we can pull out that just a little bit of this leaven, just a speck of it, just a tiny bit of it is enough to do damage. And not just a little damage, the whole lump, the whole loaf is affected by this yeast. So as he's cautioning them against unbelief, he even says to the disciples, you are not immune from this, and neither are we. And so he calls them, pay attention, look, watch out, beware of this. 
because it's small and subtle, but it will kill you. So this issue of leaven then does really two things. Jesus at the same time is calling us to examine ourselves. Because otherwise, we might assume that we believe until we bump into something hard. And we don't even know that there's leaven in the dough until you put the bread in the oven. So he's calling us on one hand to examine ourselves internally, but on the other hand, when he says, look, watch, pay attention, he's also calling us to look at something that's beyond ourselves, something that's outside of ourselves. We know that the issue of leaven was common in Jewish tradition, particularly around one time. It was, there were a lot of traditions around Passover, which happened once a year, that they would sacrifice this Passover lamb and that they would eat unleavened bread, flat bread that didn't rise. Why was the bread supposed to be, in a Passover tradition, without leaven? To answer that, we have to go all the way back to the Old Testament at the first Passover. You can turn there with me if you want in Exodus uh, 12. We know that Passover comes out of the time when the Jews were enslaved in Egypt. And God had made promises to his people that he would be their God and they would be his people. And so he promised to bring them out of slavery. And he did that uh, by Moses and at the hand of ten signs or ten plagues. The last of those plagues was the killing of all the firstborn in Egypt. And that the Jews were to put the blood of a lamb over their doorpost, and then the Lord would pass over them and would not take the life of the firstborn. As a result of this, this is what happened in Exodus chapter 12, verse 33, we'll begin. The Egyptians then were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, otherwise we shall all be dead. And so the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. So basically the Egyptians say in a moment, get out of here before we all die. And it was so sudden, so instantaneous that they didn't even really have time to make a whole lot of preparation. So they just bind up the dough as it is, tuck it into their cloak, in the, in the bowl even, and go that way. We'll pick up the story then in verse 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and couldn't wait, nor had they prepared any provision for themselves. In other words, it happened so fast there wasn't time to let the bread rise, to put in the yeast and let the dough wait. Verse 40 the time that the people lived of Egypt, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night, 
is a night of watching kept by the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. In other words, out of this became the holiday of Passover. And they were to remember this time that the Lord had saved them. And part of this remembrance is that they would eat this unleavened bread as a reminder that they had waited a long time and then salvation came suddenly, in a moment. And they, he calls this, well, our version of this then becomes Easter, but Passover here is called a night of watching. Not just remembering what had happened, but a night of paying attention, a night of looking for something. There's a note of anticipation then in the Passover. And Jesus gets on this same note of anticipation in Mark 8. The response to the disciples, Jesus asked this long series, I think there's seven, eight, maybe even more uh, questions, rhetorical questions that would challenge them, that would make them think. But the very last question he asked them in verse 21 contains one tiny little word that for me is the most encouraging Look at verse 21. And Jesus said to them, to the disciples, do you not yet understand? That sounds like a criticism. And on some level it is. Why then is it encouraging? Because of the little word, yet. Do you not yet understand? Meaning that one day they would. There's a note of anticipation, of of hope in this, that this will come, that understanding is coming, that belief it's coming, that seeing it's coming by the grace of Jesus and in his saving death and resurrection, that even in spite of unbelief, that there's a new Passover coming, that there's a new blood of the Lamb that's coming, that there's new bread that's coming, and this is going to change everything. So Paul writes then, in reference to this, in 1 Corinthians 5, these words, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Jesus is calling our attention here to the fact that we are already unleavened, that his Passover lamb sacrificed has already been accomplished in response to it then we're to feast upon him upon his grace and upon his mercy because Jesus really is the bread of life would you please pray with me our God would you help us not to miss these signs these flashing lights that point us to your reality, that you really are the Son 
of God, the Lord of all creation, and ultimately our Savior, our sacrifice, our bread, and our life. Lord, help us now in this time, not just to think about this, but to feast upon it, to take, to eat, and to enjoy. Lord, we give you all of our thanks and all of our praise. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.